0: Today we're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start with 17 and end with 26. And uh, we're crawling through Matthew. (laughs) I would say that's what we're doing here. I will be here next week, but I'm not preaching next week. Jason is. He's given me a break since I'm going to be gone all week at the... uh, (laughs) Creation Museum, which I'm really looking forward to that. But anyway, um, I just want you to stay with me on this, starting in verse 17, Matthew 5. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will be will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way for be quick, excuse me, for be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Assuredly, I say to you, will no by means get out of there until you pay the last penny. That's a kind of a tough section, isn't it? You know, as I read through Matthew and read the the things that he has, to, the Lord has to say to us, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, I realize how difficult it would be for each and every one of us to try to live up to that and yet it is expected of us (laughs) remember we said before that the sermon on the mount was really given for three purposes one to show us how far short we fall from god's righteousness two, to show us what kingdom living will be like and then what kingdom living should be like Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and and, and, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, or we looked at chapter 5. And most likely this mountain he was on was a mountain in Capernaum near the Sea of Galilee. Jesus started his sermon with some radical ideas about real spirituality in the blessed are Beatitudes. It was new to them, not only because it flies in the face of fleshly religion, But he also taught with authority. Each of the Beatitudes was designed to bring us to the point of confession and repentance. That we are usually just the opposite of what he's speaking there and calls us to repentance and prayer for renewal in his spirit. We saw that we are called salt and light. He points out the similarities of the uses of salt and light. And he says salt is used both as a seasoning and as a pres- preservation. And light is, the light we are is to reveal God, who he is. Our outworking of our salvation then becomes an indicator of the work, inner working of the Spirit of God, shown by our good works that glorify the Father. Now Jesus turns to the law and requirements on us. You know, we, uh, during VBS, we taught the children the Ten Commandments. And some of them got so good at it, they could recite them. Uh, All charity had to do was just do one, and they'd say it, and two, and they'd say it, and so on down the line. And so I think you need to understand that what we were doing there is in that process of teaching them the law and showing them they cannot keep it presenting Christ to them as the only righteousness they would have. It becomes difficult for a person who reads this section and then gets into the book of Romans and Galatians to try to understand our relationship, the Christian's relationship with the law. That's why we need to break this down in the original language. It was written so we can understand it better. He says, I did not come to destroy the law. This is a Greek word, kataluo, and it means to demolish. Or halt," He said rather to fulfill it. Here's a Greek word, plerou. And it means to satisfy, finish, complete, and perfect. Jesus fulfilled the areas of the law for us. And that's why when you read in the book of Galatians or Ephesians or other places like Romans, then it says we're not under the law. If you walk in the Spirit, you're not under the law. It doesn't mean exactly that the law is not still in force. He didn't come to destroy it. But all the requirements of the law, basically, for example, all the predictions in the sacrificial system that was under the law, he paid the full sacrifice for. No need for any other sacrifices. The requirements of the specific commandments of the law, he kept for us. Perfectly. You know, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you're not just being saved from the penalty of your sins. Jesus Christ was born for you so that you might have a birth in God. He lived perfectly for you so that you would be presented perfect before God. He died a perfect death so that you would never be held penalty. He rose again to give you resurrection life. He sits at the right hand of the Father, basically, to intercede for you because you're still sinning. In all the wisdom of the Old Testament, his behavior literally exemplified it perfectly. And in all of his interpretations of the law, he came with the original spirit of the law, not just the letters. The one thing that brings us from a law relationship with God to a faith relationship with God... After having obeyed the law perfectly, which we cannot do, he did, he finalized all the sacrificial requirements of sin. By taking both the sin and judgment on himself and thus satisfying God on all accounts. So that God the Father could say, having seen his agony on the cross, I am satisfied. That is so important to understand. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But there's no need for anything else to be done. We enter into our relationship by putting all of our confidence in Jesus Christ on His worth, on His work, and on His word. Those are really only three things you need to concern yourself about. His worth, His work, and His word. It's all brought together in that, and thus we become born again or become new resurrected creatures when he comes in. We actually become new creatures born of God. Jesus says that not one jot or tittle of the law is going to pass away before all is fulfilled. Now keep in mind what this means. A jot was a dot over an I. That's what it was in Hebrew. A tittle was a, you might see the letter O, but in Hebrew you might see a little horn on it, okay? That's what it means. And th- think about what he was saying. Not one thing about the law, not even the way it's written, is going to pass away until all is fulfilled. Now what they couldn't grasp at that particular point was that they knew that the letter of the law was important to them and they were all involved in the outward Uh, exteriors of the ceremonial part of the law, but their hearts weren't right. And that's what he's always going after. Our hearts. (laughs) Jesus honored the law of God and he says to those who break it and teach others to do so, they're called least in the kingdom of heaven. And those who keep it and teach others is called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Old Testament remains an authoritative revelation of divine testimony and teaching, but it's primarily foreshadowed events and ceremonial sacrifices. All speak of Jesus, and he fulfilled it all. So that the law is not a model for Christian behavior. Hello. The law is not a model for Christian behavior. Why? Why? It's a demonstration of who God is and something you're not capable of living up to. And fulfilling in his death and resurrection and eventual second coming, Christ has fulfilled it all. So he said nothing's going to pass away from the law until all is fulfilled, and then he fulfilled it. (laughs) Isn't that great? Kingdom righteousness, however, works from the inside out, not from the exterior in. The Pharisees' righteousness, he said, you've got to, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, or you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that confused people in his day, because they thought those guys were the most righteous guys on earth. Jesus knew they weren't. He knew what they were. But the good news is Jesus has completely fulfilled everything. Completely taken everything. And as a result, our entry is now based not on our righteousness, but His. It's almost as if you imagine this, the Lord Jesus with a, with a robe on and a big long trail behind it. <laughs> as He gums into heaven with His you know you've seen these robes and like wedding gowns and so forth the big long trails it's like we're kind we're just kind of coming in holding on to that trail it's righteous enough to get us there but it's the only way we're going to get there the only way the law and Old Testament Paul says was written for us listen to first 1 Corinthians 1011. All these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages has come. Now you have to understand, you know, there's always people going, it's the last days? It's the end of the world. (laughs) Let me tell you something. The end of the ages started at the cross. And God will decide how long that has to go. Because one day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years of one day. And we might think, oh, we got Israel in the land, and they're going to come in forty years. And they've all these little pe- people that have done that said, well, 1948, therefore the Lord's coming in 1988. Um, I'm still here. Well, it was the 1967 war, so the Lord's coming in 2007. Mm, no, don't trust that stuff. Don't get ex- in, t- caught up in that stuff. Get caught up in this daily living. That's what you need to be caught up in. Because you have no control when He's going to come. And honestly, Jesus said, I don't know either. And so if He doesn't know, how in the world do you think you'd ever figure it out? You won't. You need to be ready every minute. He could come back any minute. But He could also come back for Maybe another 500 years. <laughs> and we go, oh, I hope not. Well, I hope not too. But here's something you need to understand about the law. Turn in your Bible, it's not in my notes, In the 1 Timothy chapter 1. And when Paul wrote this, he wrote it to make us understand something. The real purpose of the law. Now, in Galatians, he spends a lot of time in the book of Galatians talking about the law being a, like a tutor or, or, or a private uh, teacher that you have when you're little, bringing you up to a place where you're ready to go into adulthood. But listen to what he says here in 1 Timothy 1.5. Now, the purpose of the commandment or the purpose of the law is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and a sincere faith, which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, listen to this, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say or the things they affirm. Stay with me. We know that the law is good if a person uses it lawfully know this the law is not made for a righteous person what did Jesus need a law to tell him to be righteous no why what was he automatically it was just innate in him wasn't it do you need a law to tell you to be righteous no you don't if you have Christ Christ and his spirit automatically write the law on your hearts. You know right from wrong. You know good from evil. And you know to stay away from one and to embrace the other. The law was not made for a righteous man. Who was it made for, Paul? For the lawless, the insubordinate, the ungodly, sinners, the unholy, profane, murderers, fathers of uh, fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, That's homosexuals for you that don't know. Kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and any other thing contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Paul, what are you saying? We don't need the law? No, he's not saying that. We need the law because we're unrighteous. We need the law to bring us to Christ. We need to come to Christ and find out what the interpretation of the real law is. It's easy to say, which commandment is it? Oh, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Well, you say, I've never murdered anybody. Man, he's going to take us down to our toes on this one. Listen to what he says. He starts with murder he says you say he's repeating now the penalty for murder and judgment and he says all the people would say well thou shalt not murder and all the righteous people standing around him all the so-called amen brother amen brother jesus you're teaching it and then he gets down inside of a place they'd rather not be he says let me just tell you this if you are angry With your brother without cause. Without cause. This puts you in the same judgment as an actual murderer. This word angry in the Greek is orgizo, and it means enraged. And the idea here is he's taking this, if you go even further with it, and start name-calling And you say, well, you say raka, which is a thing that meant worthless. You're in danger of being brought before the judgment. If you say, you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Think about that. Now, this word fool means stupid, blockhead, dull, whatever. (laughs) We have to be careful about how we use our words. Anger is explained by Jesus, is murder to God in the heart. So where does it lead? Well, here's something that we need to think about this. In our current pra- the current practices in Jesus' day, someone would bring a sacrifice to the altar, a lamb or a dove or something, and the priest would accept it normally and sacrifice it and all as well. But Jesus is concerned again about the heart, okay, so he says, if you bring it and you remember that your brother has something against you, not that you're mad at your brother, but that somebody has something against you. You've blown it somewhere and hurt somebody. And that person's still upset with you. Forget about accusing them of being angry and, and a murderer. You got a problem. And he says, What do you do? Somebody. You know, this passage is almost ignored in the church today. And it grieves me that it is. Because we allow ourselves to get bitter at one another in the church for the dumbest, silliest reasons. We hold grudges. Then we think God is going to be with us when we work in ministry. So we come to church and we sing our songs and we listen to nice sermons and we go about business as usual. And the problem is somewhere down deep in our hearts is anger dwelling like a chicken in a hen house. I mean a fox in a hen house. Chicken ought to be there. <laughs> How easy to get your words tang- tangled up, right? In many cases, and that's what he's describing here, we know If we've done something to hurt somebody, the Holy Spirit is very, very faithful about bringing the knowledge of us. You hurt that guy. You hurt that person. You shouldn't have done that. And it could be something that's just so slight, you know, not as so much as like, uh, were you born with that nose? I mean, you don't want to not something like that, (laughs) but something we've said or done to hurt somebody and we just go about thinking that God's going to work through us in our ministry and, and we don't need to go ask anybody forgiveness. I'm not humbling myself before that person. And Jesus likens that to this sacrifice. And he says, if we've left this undone for a long period of time, a long period of time, God will remove our ministry completely. Oh, we may work hard to keep trying to make it work. But its lack of success is due to another problem. Remember, after the great victory of Joshua at Jericho, where they just marched around it and it fell, one of the guys there saw something in Jericho that he wanted, that he was told to leave alone, a guy named Achan. And so nobody knows but Achan that he's got this hidden in his tent, and they go out against this little bitty town called Ai and get their tails whipped. And Joshua, he's just despairing. Oh, God, I thought you were with us. He goes, Oh, you got a problem. You got sin in your group, in your congregation. When they found out what it was, and guys, this is something that's really sobering. Aiken's family knew about it too, but Aiken, when it finally fell down to the fact that Aiken was the, the, the guy that did this, he, his wife, and his children were all killed and burned with fire. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? You know, when we stand up against sin, and we talk about putting people in a disciplinary situation because of continued sin, we're not doing it because we just don't like that person anymore and we think they ought to be out of here. We're doing it because we want to prevent them, their wives, and their children to be burnt. We're rescuing them. Not pushing them out. That's their decision. Do you see that? And the reason the church doesn't do this anymore is simply because... Well, we've got a a God of love. Boy, do we ever. But we'll, we'll think about that in a minute. It's a sober thought. When Jesus said, Agree with your adversary. Lest he turn you to the judge. And the judge turn you to the prison guard. And the prison guard throw you in prison. You'll not come out of there until you've paid the last penny now here's what you need to understand about that here's what we all need to understand about that Jesus paid the whole debt and by no means he says are you going to get out of there until all debts have been adjudicated but Jesus paid it all and to reject that is to reject God's provision for you people will in hell will never finish paying the debt they owe did you hear that People in hell will never finish paying. It's going to take an eternity to pay the debt they owe. And they'll never get out because that kind of thing against God requires a satisfaction you and I are unable to accomplish. It can never be repaid in hell because we're sinning constantly against His holiness. And we have rejected the full payment. The last drop of payment for sin will never be paid in hell. God looked at us. Now, there's something I want you to talk about the good news here, okay? You say, oh, you're up there preaching on hell again, John. Well, okay. Ought to do that once in a while, right, Larry? It's real. It's real. It's a real place. Jesus described it as a real place with a rich man and Lazarus. It's a real place. And the man there in hell lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham over in the good place and begged God to send Lazarus, the guy that he had paid no attention to, who was suffering all the time outside of his door, never paid him one bit of attention, said, so Send him. And put water on my tongue. Notice, he did not want to get out of hell. That's how awful the heart of human beings are. He didn't want to get out of hell, he wanted somebody to touch his tongue with water for temporary relief. Oh, I've seen people come forward in a church or profess Jesus, they're under conviction. What do I need to do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. They pray some prayer, they go out, and they're still living like nothing happened. They only wanted temporary relief from the guilt they felt at the time. Listen, that guilt is not temporary. Without Christ, it's forever. Now, here's the thing we need to understand. God bottled up His wrath. He kept from showing it. Oh, he showed it at times in the Old Testament. My friends, he bottled it up. He held it back. And then he sends his son to live a perfect life on this earth. And at one point when he hung on the cross, God released all of his wrath. All of it on him. Woo! Hallelujah. Aren't you glad? He's the only one who could have taken it. His perfect life was the only life that could have taken such a thing. Anyone turning to Christ for forgiveness of salvation basically is never held accountable for their sin again, even though we continue to sin. God bottled up his wrath, let it go, all on his son, and said, I'm done. I'm satisfied. Can you imagine a person who hears this because this is the truth and then rejects it? Wow, that person is never shielded from the judgment of God ever. But those who do receive Christ, those who do stake their lives on Jesus, stake their lives as as your life, he becomes your life. You know, it amazes me. I read Spurgeon a lot, and he really gets down and dirty on some of the sin things. And he basically really convicts you in just reading his devotions. And he talks about the fact that a person who's been rescued from sin and still continues to live in it, as we've learned in 1 John in our home teams, is a liar. A liar. They're not saved. They're not regenerate. They look for temporary relief someplace. But they're lying. But then those of us who have come under the shadow of the Most High God, under Jesus' blood, what does He say to us? Hebrews chapter 10, 17 and 18. He says this, Your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there's remission of these there's no longer an offering for sin. Oh, praise his name. That's what we're about. In this church, that's what we're about. And consider how great this salvation is. Consider it. To take for God to take the effort to withhold wrath and then release it all on his son and then offer us a free gift forever. Is there any other message like this in the world? No, there's not, is there? What about you? It's a great salvation. But if you're looking at my notes or you want to turn and you don't have the notes and you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, do that. I want to show you from God's Word how simply. You can reject Christ. How easy it is. And if you're here and you think, well, I'll, I'll talk about that later. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away from them. I pray for our college students. Don't drift away. The temptation is there to do it, especially in a secular college. I pray for the people that go to high school in Clopton. Don't drift away. You're going to have teachers that are going to tell you that you came from a monkey and a worm. Don't drift away. It says, If the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, that's talking about the law, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, which first began to be spoken by the Lord, confirmed to us by those who heard him, God bearing witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Spirit according to his will. Do you understand this, my friends? I don't know your heart. But do you realize that my simply neglecting Christ, you're not going to escape judgment? You may not say, I'm not neglecting Jesus, but at the same time, or I'm not rejecting Jesus, but at the same time, you're neglecting Him. You're rejecting Him. You will not escape judgment. Or you may put, put it off somehow and say, I'll do this later. I know that preacher's calling me for, to repent today and come to Jesus and get saved today, but I've got to think this thing through a little bit. I'll do this later. Guess what you're doing? Neglecting Christ. And you will not escape judgment. Or you may be depending on some prayer you prayed as a child and and all of a sudden you're still living as if Jesus didn't exist. You're neglecting Christ. How can you believe that you're not going to be coming under judgment? So what do you do? Today is a day you can do this, by the way. You come humbly. Agree with him about your sin. Agree with him if you have something against your brother or they have something against you. Agree with them, Confess your sin. You know, that sacrifice brought to the altar is like us bringing ourselves to do a ministry and we've got bitterness in our heart or somebody's bitter against us and we don't go fix that and we say, well, God's going to bless my ministry because I'm doing it. Big deal. Big deal. It's not going to happen. But if you come to Jesus humbly, agree with Him that you have sinned desperately against Him and the holiness of the Father, He's not going to reject you. There's not one person in the world. The worst king in the Old Testament, Manasseh. You hear all about him and if you read 2 Kings, you think that's it for him. You find out over in Chronicles, he actually repented and God had mercy on him. He's the worst king. The trouble he caused lasted a long time in Israel and caused a lot of people to sin. But God forgave Manasseh because he came humbly. He came penitently. He came understanding what he was before the Lord. The Lord quickened him. He granted him repentance. And then he came. If you neglect the message today and wait for another day or live as if he wasn't there. You're not going to escape judgment. Come to Jesus. I'm not asking you to come to ba- Ramsey Creek Baptist. I mean, I love it that you're here. Uh, I love you guys. I Hold you up if I could in one big hug. But I can't save you. And this church can't save you. Jesus can save you. Come to Jesus. And for those of you who have come to Jesus and received this free gift and are following Him, be diligent. You have an adversary. Peter calls him roaming around, seeking to whom he may devour. heard a good message from Michael Youssef the other day about a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's what Satan's doing. You see, he's defeated. You say, well, if he's defeated, how, how come he has so much power? Well, John tells us in 1 John, the whole world lies in his lap like a plaything, but not Christians, not believers. We are surrounded in the armor of God, or should be. be devoted to Christ's Word so that you can stand against the adversary and be the kind of example to people in the world and to your own brothers and sisters. Live as somebody whose home is not here, but in heaven. Live like the next minute you might go home. Live that way. Be a person of God's Word. Every day, day in and out. Know it. Meditate on it. Fill yourself with it. Because the Holy Spirit is not going to talk to you any other way. Oh, I had a vision. Oh, I saw the Lord. An angel appeared to me. (laughs) This book is a love letter from God to you. If you don't read it, you're. I have to be careful and not use the words that he said, fool. You're acting foolish. So, you're going to rejoice in his presence someday if you do this. Believer, he didn't call us just to come into a particular comfortable little pew with padding on it each week. Well, I've done my thing. No, he called you to take up a cross. Now, that's kind of disturbing (laughs) because a cross was used to die on. So what's he saying? Give up your life. Deny yourself. Take a cross. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Peter even got confused one time, and Jesus was going to tell him how he was going to die on a cross. And he looks back at John and says, what about that guy? He said, that's nothing to you. We don't look at each other and say, well, he's blessed. How come I'm not blessed like that? You're blessed as much as you need to be. You're blessed if you mourn. You're blessed if you're if you're poor in spirit. That's when you're blessed. If I could if I had what they have, if I had the money they have, I could go into the ministry. You know, those of us who are in the ministry realize that every penny we have comes one day at a time. And if we try to depend on it tomorrow, God just takes it away i want you to depend on me we have people in this church who are hurting financially right now and they are living one day at a time that's the way we all ought to live right so let's rejoice together as we sing our final song